electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everybody. I'm Melissa Lee. And today for Kelly Evans, here's what's ahead. Inflation hitting a 40-year high. The market seems to think we may have seen the worst of it. But is that sentiment premature? And will this change anything when it comes to the Fed's rate hike plan? Plus, from the streaming wars to the box office battle, we speak with the CEO of Paramount Pictures. The stock is up 20% so far this year. Can the Top Gun sequel keep it at a cruising altitude? And a big bank, a beaten down retailer, and a read on airlines. We've got the action, the story, and the trade on three names set to report in today's earnings exchange. But we begin today with the markets, and we are looking at markets that are still higher, um, but we are off the session highs. Take a look at the Dow here. We're up by about four-tenths of a percent. The high in the Dow had been 361. We're up 125 right now. The S&P 500 up by 23, or a half a percent, and the Nasdaq Composite up by 114, uh, or about nine-tenths of a percent. The Nasdaq 100, by the way, being led by the cloud and cybersecurity name. Cloudflare, Datadog, Fortinet, Zscaler, energy spiking as well as Shanghai lifts some of its COVID curbs and OPEC warned of tight supplies. Crude back above 100 bucks a barrel. Transocean, Marathon, Occidental are your leaders in that space today. The 10-year yield meantime moving lower following the CPI report and after hitting its highest level since December of 2018 earlier in the session. We've got the latest auction results in the 10-year just a few minutes. Earlier today, Double on Capital CEO Jeffrey Gunlock sounding a slightly bullish on prices today. Inflation is peaking because uh, of the, the base effects are going to be somewhat favorable. We had some pretty big month-over-month prints in the middle of 2021. That, I don't think, is likely uh, to recur. So we probably are at peak, but it's going to be sticky. Our next guest agrees, but doesn't think it will change the Fed's rate hike plan at the next meeting. He still expects a 50 basis point hike. Joining us now, Michael Schumacher, head of macro strategy at Wells Fargo. Mike, Mike great to have you with us. Um, the, the point here is the sticky word, and I think that's what I would underscore in that Jeffrey Gunlock soundbite. We may have seen the peak, but it's going to stick around. So how does that actually impact the consumer? Yeah, it's interesting, Melissa. So when you think about this from the Fed standpoint, yes, inflation probably has peaked, no guarantee, pretty likely. But does the Fed really care about inflation 10, 11, 12 months ago? No. The Fed's looking forward and saying, what's the outlook over the next three to six months? From an inflation standpoint, frankly, not that great month to month. So we, the Fed, have to tighten fairly aggressively. We think that gets going in earnest in a few weeks at the May 4th meeting and continues on in June. 50 seems to be a foregone conclusion by most folks. And so um, your thoughts on that aren't necessarily a surprise. But what do you see in terms of the next couple of meetings? Do we see, you know, sequential 50 basis point hikes? Well, the market's priced for that now, Melissa. It's interesting, though, when you think about the Fed's tools, the Fed will announce a rate hike almost certainly in a couple of weeks. It's also going to announce balance sheet reductions very, very likely. And lots of people in the market have speculated about this. This has been a popular topic, especially for the last few weeks. So it's a combination of rate hikes and reducing the balance sheet. And it's a pretty potent cocktail. So does it automatically mean the Fed's going to go 50 in May and 50 in June? It's pretty likely. It's not locked in at this point. 
But I do think that a very big rate hike in May plus the balance sheet reductions, it's almost a given at this point. Yeah. What do you, how do you think we'll, we'll see this uh, inflation play out in terms of the consumer and its behavior over the next six to 12 months? The New York Fed consumer survey was very interesting. It's one year look at inflation outlook was 6.5 percent, which is the highest uh, on record as far back as when the data was collected, Michael. And so I'm wondering, you know, as the longer this is embedded in the consumer mindset, how much more damaging is that instead of just one headline number uh, on in any given month? Yes, yeah, a critical point, Melissa. So if those has become part of the consumer psyche, do people with jobs say, gee, I really should negotiate even harder for a raise or union members push more aggressively? That's the big worry for policymakers at the Fed. So the risk is that if the Fed goes relatively slow, relatively light in terms of rate hikes, that behavior becomes more entrenched. And one thing we've been considering and talking to our economics team about quite a bit is what is the inflation run rate, let's say, toward the end of this year? If it's still 4% plus, it's pretty dangerous for the Fed. The Fed wants to get that number sub three and really to set a pretty good path for inflation at 23. So it's very, very concerned about this becoming really a reinforcing loop. It does not want that at all. That's the, the very bad scenario for the Fed. You know, I, I spoke to you uh, on Fast Money at five o'clock, you know, sometime mid-March, end of March timeframe, Michael. And, and at that time, you said the Fed needs to put some grit in the wheels of business. Um, and, and it feels like a very different picture at this point. How much grit do you think goes into those wheels? And would you agree more along with, with what Christopher Waller said that, you know, it's going to be a hammer? The impact on the economy could be a, more like a hammer as opposed to your grit metaphor. Let's hope it's grit and it's not a <laughs> hammer. When you hammer things, they tend to break. So I prefer to stick with the grit metaphor for now. But it's it's interesting that you, if you're the Fed, you run the risk of going a little bit slowly and hoping things work out well or taking the hammer to it and saying, odds are we may overshoot, but at least we'll stem the chance of a really bad problem down the road. And I think the jury's still out on this one. There are a number of people at the Fed who'd really like to go with the hammer approach. It's not clear to us that Jay Powell's among them. And Jay Powell's going to drive that bus. When you think about the Fed governors, and Governor Waller is one, I think it's very, very likely the case they'll follow Powell's lead. So if Chairman Powell says, you know what, we got this Schumacher guy over at Wells Fargo, no more grip, we have to take the hammer out, then I think they go that way. But I'm not convinced he's quite ready to go there yet. So we'll stay with grit and maybe a little bit of uh, unpleasant oil that gets in there, but we're not going to the hammer quite yet. I guess the real hope is that we don't need the hammer. Um, Mike, if you just stand by for just a minute, we want to get uh, the results of the 10-year note auction. Just went up for auction. Rick Santelli is tracking the action at the CME. Rick. Yes, Melissa Lee, it was not pretty. We're talking $34 billion reopened tens, so we'll call it nine-year, 10-month. The yield at the Dutch auction, 2.72%, about four basis points above where the one-issued market was trading. Pricing was mass messy. D minus, dog minus is the grade, and there really weren't any internals that looked very good. The bid to cover was weak, the indirects were weak. The only thing that even matched up with the 10 auction average was direct bidders at 17%. Dealers took nearly 19%, the biggest amount since April of last year. Just not a pretty auction. And you can see, looking at the charts, that we 
uh, popped on yields, sold off right after the results were out, and everybody's probably scratching their head. Why? We had a big concession today. Yields were going down. I had resistance at 2.82% in tens. Other technicians did as well. But this goes to show you that many investors just thought that it didn't pay to be aggressive in this auction and catch that falling knife, despite the fact that even though we reached all inflation targets this morning, basically, so you could say the whisper number was high, the reality is, is that the worst number of the month in consumer price index is in the rearview mirror, and traders took a bit of a breather, but not a big enough breather to jump into the pool of buying these tens. Back to you. All right, Rick Santelli, thank you for the update there. Um, Mike, back over to you, and I, I do want to ask you about where, what you see for yields, because you say you, you see an inversion in a, a pretty um, big one by the end of the year. We do. And the curve inverted for a little bit. And we're talking about the difference between the two-year and 10-year Treasury yields. Now, if you blinked, you missed it because it's positively sloped again. But the reason we think it's going to invert is because we do think the Fed's going to hike pretty aggressively and fairly soon. And that's going to push up short-term rates, two-year, three-year Treasury, that sort of thing. Now, longer-term rates are really set by global markets. So think about the 10-year, 30-year, that part of the market. We think that's going to be limited to some degree by low rates elsewhere, and also by what I would call a global shortage of long-duration bonds. So when you put it all together, Melissa, where you get from our perspective is at the end of the year, let's say, two-year Treasury yield probably ranging from low threes to maybe 350, 360, something like that. And 10-year Treasury, I would say 250, 260, up to about three, maybe a little bit higher, probably not too much. So two-year rising more than the 10-year that difference becoming inverted once again. And it really is driven by the Fed hiking pretty impressive. All right. Michael, great to see you. Thank you. Thank you, Melissa. Michael Schumacher with Wells Fargo. Meantime, stocks shrugging off the surge in inflation, but well off session highs with the S&P and NASDAQ trying to snap a two-day losing streak. Our next guest says investors looking for gains should follow the cash flow. And it's time to buy some profitable pandemic darlings at a discount. Let's welcome in Chris Grisanti, chief equity strategist at MAI Capital Management. Chris, good to see you. First of all, just an overall markets uh, question. So let's say we saw the peak in inflation. What, What does that mean if for the markets if inflation remains stubbornly high anyway? Well, Melissa, it's good to be with you again. Uh, I'd say uh, the the quote-unquote peak of inflation is about a consensus view as you can have right now. And that's not a tough call because oil was so high in March and it's clearly going to and has been coming down. But but I think the more important point, and Mike, Mike touched on this, is what the long end does versus the short end. And we're more constructive than Mike. I, I think that we don't get an inversion, at least not by year end, and, and that um, we look at the three-month tenure, and that's still very steeply uh, sloped. And, and you know even if we get 200, 250 on Fed funds by October, we're actually happy to see the long end you know approaching three because again that means we can avoid the inversion so i I would say all eyes are on the long end of the curve these days when you say 200 and 250 are you including the the impact of balance sheet runoff i'm not uh and and i think that's good but if you really think about it the fact that we had you know the qe that actually made fed funds lower than the printed number now so now we're about even the the i think that the uh q t the, the tightening the balance sheet runoff will actually force the long end higher which mm-hmm. again look nobody loves higher interest rates but boy we sure hate an inverted curve and i think qt can actually help solve the inverted 
curve problem as well. So, so we're somewhat constructive on the, on the second half of the year. want to get to your stock picks, Chris, and one of them stands out to me, and that's Home Depot. We're entering um, spring planting season, which should theoretically be a great thing for Home Depot and Lowe's alike. Uh, at the same time, we've got high prices for the raw materials that do-it-yourselfers like like lumber, for instance, um, and, and that will impact that part of the business, which is a big part for a Home Depot. How do you sure. sort of view view this whole mix? Well, so formalists, our channel checks are saying the consumer is, is paying up. I mean, business is good. It's solid. Uh, I'm more concerned about compl- supply constraints where Home Depot you know, can't get their hands on everything from tulips for the spring to, to lumber for the renovations. So that's what we're concerned about. But, but all our channel checks say higher mortgage rates, at least so far, and it's early, uh, are not having an effect on, on overall demand. And we're pleased about that. And at the same time, these stocks are down. So you can buy a Home Depot at maybe a 15% discount to where it usually trades in a market that's obviously more expensive than the typical S&P. Is there a tulip shortage, by the way? I'm... <laughs> yeah, we can, do, we can talk about the next uh, tulip mania crisis. Yeah, I don't <laughs> want to start one here on TV. So, but, but seriously, business is good at Home Depot. It's good at Domino's. It's good at Amazon. And right. these stocks are all trading markedly below uh, their average PEs, and, and they ought not be. Do, for Domino's specifically, do they have the edge because of, of how forward-looking they've been in terms of investing in technology and getting, getting those margins as big as they can through technological innovation? Yeah, no, no, you're exactly right. They're almost like the Starbucks of pizza. They, they, they have these economies of scale. And it's not just the technology. It's, it's you know, things as, as prosaic as cheese prices and, and, and flour prices uh, are, are a big issue for a pizza maker. And, and they have economies of scale. And look, it's going to hurt everybody but in, in, a, uh, in a commodity business like this, if you're the big one and you can do efficiencies of scale, you'll come out a winner. We think Domino's is exactly like that. All right, Chris, thanks for your time. Chris Crisante. Thanks, Melissa. MAI. Coming up, shares of Paramount are riding a five-year losing streak, but are actually beating the market so far this year, up 20%. And the top streaming stock year to date, up next, we'll speak with the head of Paramount Pictures about the media landscape, its box office strategy, and what it takes to stand out in the streaming world. Plus, it is the first week of earnings season, and today we are bringing you the action, the story, and the trade on J.P. Morgan, Delta Airlines, and Bed Bath & Beyond ahead of tomorrow's AM results. The exchange is back right after this. This is The Exchange on CNBC. Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? The real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager.
Welcome back to The Exchange. Paramount is fresh off its fourth number one movie at the box office this year, and Wall Street's starting to take notice. The stock is outperforming its media rivals, including the newly formed Warner Brothers Discovery, our parent company Comcast, and Disney. Can it keep the momentum going? Julia Borson is with the CEO of Paramount Pictures and Nickelodeon, Brian Robbins. Julia, take it away. Thanks so much, Melissa. And yes, Brian, you are not only CEO of Pyramid Pictures and Nickelodeon, but also oversee content, your chief content officer for film, as well as the family and kids division of Paramount Plus. So you have um, your your hand both in the theatrical movie side as well as the streaming side. But let's start off with the film business. Sonic the Hedgehog 2 outperforming all expectations this weekend, despite a lot of concerns that families would be wary of going back to the movie theater. How does this weekend's performance change your strategy going forward? Yeah, it was a great weekend for us with Sonic 2. It's our biggest opening weekend since 2014, $72 million. We're thrilled with that result. And, and really, it's because, first of all, our, film, our filmmakers delivered a great product. Um, and our marketing and distribution teams did an amazing job marketing it. And quite frankly, there's an amazing synergy going on now between myself and my colleagues uh, at the company, you know, George Teeks, who runs CBS, and Chris McCarthy, who runs the cable networks, the three of us are really working together to unleash the reach of the entire company on our films and our other, other projects, and that is definitely paying dividends for us. But in terms of the box office itself, what is your strategy in terms of the amount of time you're going to be leaving these films in theaters? You haven't announced yet how long Sonic the Hedgehog 2 is going to be in theaters before you release it on streaming. What's the strategy in terms of trying to maximize both the box office and the streaming business without having them cannibalize each other? Well, first of all, all of our films will end up on Paramount Plus eventually. As far as your question on the windowing, you know, since we've been in, in, in this pandemic and are still trying to figure out when is it really over, we, we've looked at each film holistically. So back uh, last summer, starting with A Quiet Place, there was a window to release a movie theatrically where COVID had calmed down. We had a nice run at the box office with that. And then that movie went to streaming on day 46 and was really successful for us. The following month, pandemic wasn't so good. We released the Paw Patrol movie. We decided to go day and date with that movie because families wanted choice, whether they would see it you know, at home or in the theaters. As it turned out, it worked out for us both ways. That movie was successful at the box office. And it was our most successful movie in streaming. Fast forward to this year, um, we made a decision to hold our release dates for Scream, Jackass, and Mm -hmm. then Lost City. Each one of those films opened number one at the box office. And so far, Scream and Jackass came to Paramount Plus on day 46. Both films are performing incredibly well on streaming. So certainly having that flexibility with how long you leave theater, uh, films in theater seems like an advantage, but there's another factor going on right now, and that's one we've been talking about on CNBC all day today, and that is inflation. How do you see that inf- uh, impacting not only your own costs when you're producing the films, but also what's going to happen with audiences? Are they going to stay home and stream on Netflix or Paramount Plus rather than going out and buying a movie ticket? Well, it certainly had an impact on the cost of making films, right? Like we were just, you know, hearing, uh, you know, the cost of materials is higher, COVID costs are higher. So it definitely has an impact on our production costs. But movies are still such an incredible value. Uh, you know, I'm discussing this the other day with my colleagues that, you know, compared to sports or any, you know, theater or any other entertainment value, 
Uh, movies is still a great value. And what I know is people want to leave the house. And they love that communal experience of going to a theater and laughing together and crying together. And when a movie is really great and you're sitting there and you don't want to move and you don't want to look at your phone, there's nothing like it. And Sonic played that way for, for families this weekend. It was a joy to sit in a theater and watch parents and kids have that experience together and laugh. So when it comes to the streaming business, though, you know, you're overseeing film and then the, the family content for Paramount Plus, there's this increasing pressure to invest to compete with the likes of, of not just Netflix and Disney Plus, but also with this new combination of Discovery and, and Warner Brothers, which just uh, started trading together um, yesterday. How do you think about investing more in content? Do you need to be spending more? Do you need to think about maybe bringing those films to the streaming service faster? Well, we're very focused on our franchise strategy, right? And if you look at the impact of the theatrical releases on streaming, they perform amazing. So we're taking advantage of the big theatrical marketing campaign and seeing it have an impact on Paramount+. Plus. Where before we only used to look at the value of a theatrical film and the traditional waterfall, we're now able to go, here's the traditional waterfall, theatrical, home video, pay TV, free TV. And now we add on our own SVOD service to that. The impact these films are having on our SVOD service has been enormous. So it's a big benefit when we look at the decision whether to greenlight a movie or not to have this additional stream of revenue. When you talk about thinking about all the different revenue streams, I can't help but think about your background, founding Awesomeness TV, this, the strength of your perspective as someone who's in the digital media space uh, for, for a long time. Looking now at Web3, are there additional opportunities for your business, whether it's in NFTs or the metaverse? I mean, all of it. Honestly, I was just looking at our numbers. We launched the Nickverse on Roblox uh, three weeks ago. And the numbers have been incredible. And it is basically taking our reach with Nick total reach up double digits in just three weeks, uh, including in my own house where my seven-year-old daughter is consuming it like crazy. Um, Same with NFTs. We had our first NFT launches last week of Star Trek and did amazingly well. All of these are incredible opportunities, not only for revenue, But really reach, and reach is so important when you have a franchise strategy and you have brands. Marketing, it's all about the marketing. Well, we've covered a lot of ground from the box office to streaming to the metaverse. Brian Robbins, thank you so much for talking to us today on the heels of those uh, Sonic the Hedgehog 2 numbers. Melissa, back over to you. All right, Julia, thank you. Julia Borson, and of course, our thanks to Brian Robbins as well. Still ahead, supply chain challenges, price increases, and making moves on the EV front. We'll hear from Toyota and Hyundai ahead of New York's auto show, plus the 30-year fixed mortgage rate holding above 5%. A look at what that is doing to the refi market. The exchange is back right after this. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big? Summarize with AI in a click. Click, click, click. Writer's block? Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. 
CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to the exchange. Let's take a check on the markets right now. In the green, uh, but off the session highs here, the Nasdaq is up by 103 points. We had been as high as 2%. Right now, we're up by 8 tenths of a percent. S&P 500 up by half a percent, and the Dow is up 127, or just about 4 tenths of a percent. Ch- take a check on the sectors here. Energy leading the way, followed by consumer discretionary. And look at the mega cap names. Tesla outperforming this group, although still down about 9%. Over the past week, uh, we are up 2.4% on Tesla. CarMax is down 8%, the biggest laggard in the S&P after reporting an earnings miss. And Kohl's seeing a nice jump on a report that Franchise Group is the latest company to throw its hat into the ring to buy the retailer with a $9 billion uh, offer. Staying with retail, uh, Lululemon also in the green. The company is saying it will expand its trade-in and resale program called Like New to all its stores. The extension comes after a two-state pilot program. Apparently, people like to wear used leggings. Uh, now let's get to Tyler Matheson for a CNBC News update. Tyler. I, I will pass on that <laughs> one. Uh, thank you, Mel. Uh, let's tell you what's happening at this hour in Ukraine. The mayor of the town of Bucha says searchers have found 403 bodies so far of people they believe were killed by Russian invaders. French forensic investigators have joined the effort to verify the death toll. Ukrainian officials hope the foreign experts will help refute Russian claims that its troops have committed no war crimes. Back in Oklahoma, Governor Stitt has signed a bill into law that criminalizes nearly all abortions. Performing the procedure will be a felony, punishable by up to 10 years in prison. The law is set to go into effect in August, but will face legal challenges. On the news tonight with Shep Smith, uh, what the Oklahoma law means for other efforts to ban abortions and the upcoming abortion battle at the Supreme Court. That is tonight at 7 o'clock Eastern Time. And a federal agency predicts gas prices will fall significantly in the second and third quarters of the year. The EIA expects regular gas will average 384 a gallon nationwide. That's still an eight-year high after you adjust for inflation. Melissa, back to you. Tyler, thank you. Still ahead, J.P. Morgan, Delta, and Bed Bath & Beyond all set to report results in the auctions market. Signaling some pops, we've got the action, the story, and the trade. Earnings Exchange is next. Welcome back to The Exchange. We are back with Earnings Exchange. As results ramp up today, we are taking a look at three names that could shed some light on the state of the economy. First up, J.P. Morgan. It is the worst performing big bank this year, down 16 percent. Rising rates generally expected to be a positive for the financials, but a slowdown in investment, banking activity and exposure to Russia could prove to be headwinds. Leslie Picker is here with a story on JPM. Todd Gordon's got the trade. He's the founder of New Age Wealth Advisors and a CNBC contributor. Leslie, what should we be expecting? Hey, Melissa. Yeah, so this is the first of the big U.S. universal banks to report. So lots of things to to dig apart here. As KB 
KBW noted in a recent report, J.P. Morgan's earnings release is the most anticipated of the group, actually, given uncertainty around FIC. That's their fixed income currencies and commodities group trading results in general and commodities and counterparty risk specifically. Remember, J.P. Morgan was the largest counterparty in that Chinese nickel producer short squeeze that took place last month. Diamond said in his annual letter a few weeks ago that the firm could lose about a billion dollars due to its Russia exposure, but didn't really detail where those losses would stem from. Another big wild card just for earnings uh, among the banks in general is capital markets volatility and the impact on areas like underwriting and trading. And that's something that J.P. Morgan could be a bellwether for when we see their results come out tomorrow. But as you mentioned, it's definitely faced some pressure in recent weeks in particular over concerns about that FIT group, its Russia exposure, and basically any unknowns that could come from Q1 results, Melissa. Todd, the setup seems pretty good for J.P. Morgan in that it's it's down so much going into earnings. Uh, y- yes, Melissa, I, you know, we, we hold it. Uh, we've reduced our holdings and I'm looking to add back on. I haven't certainly given up to, uh, on it. And as, uh, as Leslie just said, the, the, the trading will be certainly important across the three asset classes. Then you look at uh, equity trading. That'll be key. And then also look at the investment banking side. You know, as tech valuations have come in, their IPO business will uh, you know, probably uh, come under pressure as well. Uh, and then obviously come out exposed to Russia. But look, JP's got a great history of beating earnings. I think 17 of the last 20 quarters were a beat. They're fairly priced, one and a half times book, 3% yield. As I said, I, I hold it in our portfolio. We started about two and three quarters at the end of last year. We cut it down to 1%. Uh, if we could hold you know, about this 132, which is the 200-week moving average, about 130, I would be looking to add. And actually, as, despite what you said, Melissa, JP has fallen out of favor. But just in the last couple of weeks, we're starting to see a little bit of outperformance in JP compared to their big uh, peers. You know, I, you know, I, we got to see what happens on their lending side. We saw it happen with consumer credit. Uh, so it's, they're going to have to thread the needle on this report. There's a lot of factors at work. All right. Next up, Delta Airlines, the rebound in travel demand, not helping shares down 21 percent in the past year as rising jet fuel costs and labor shortages caused problems for the industry at large. CNBC.com Airlines reporter Leslie Josephs got the story on, on Delta. Leslie, what are you looking for? Well, we are expecting another loss, and that's not much of a surprise. Delta had said this earlier in the quarter. You know, every airline started this year with Omicron sidelining thousands of employees, uh, causing flight delays and things like that. Getting later into the first quarter, they had this huge spike in jet fuel, and that's uh, airline's biggest cost after labor. So we're expecting a, another loss. Um, revenue is supposed to jump almost double from, uh, more than double rather, uh, from last year. So the demand is there and, and the costs are rising alongside it. Uh, Todd, transports as a group have been terrible of late. I think they're down, what, 13 percent since the end of March. So Delta in particular, do you like this one? I, I don't, uh, unless I don't own any of the airlines. I don't like the fundamentals behind them. Uh, you know, JP uh, Morgan, ironically, just came out with positive comments saying they might be able to expand their margins. But look, you look at the, the performance of airlines and Delta it has not offered any outperformance relative to the S&P since 2016. Uh, airlines are still not back in terms of filling seats uh, to their pre-pandemic le- uh, levels. I think there's better ways to play the reopening. Uh, government regulation is, is still a drag. They're making 
employees and travelers wear the mask. They're trying to lift it. You look at what JetBlue just said. Uh, last week, they cut 20% of their flights. They're trying to pay flight attendants to show up. Alaska's trimming flights to train new pilots. And the big question is, you know, what impact will crude oil have on Delta? They don't hedge fuel prices. The way they're hedged is with uh, fuel surcharges. So we'll see how effective that is. Delta did invest in their own refinery uh, about 10 years ago. It was hard for them to, to make any money. Uh, they've tried to hedge in futures, and they, they reportedly lost about $4 billion. So I think the big thing will be the fuel charge, uh, fuel costs in this earnings report. I, I, don't, I won't touch it. Leslie, you know, airlines have always been able to, to have a fuel surcharge, and, and people in general have been willing to pay that. And so I'm wondering if, if the airline's problem really is that labor issue, not being able to get those airplanes staffed up if they're having to cut capacity. They're actually being constrained in how much they can make simply because they can't staff up those planes. Right. And you think back to two years ago when we were at the traffic low during the pandemic for travel. Uh, now we're, uh, you know, we're at 87,000 two years ago. Now we're over 2 million. They're trying to staff up as much as possible. The bailout uh, prevented the or prohibited the airlines from laying anybody off. But they did urge uh, plenty of workers, tens of thousands of them, to take buyouts. Uh, is among those airlines, it's kind of like throwing out your sweaters in July and then not having anything to wear in the winter. Uh, so airlines are, are quickly trying to staff up as fast as they can, especially that pilot shortage. We're seeing uh, regionals particularly having to uh, scale back capacity, and that's affecting the majors in that way. But people are ready to travel. We have data from Adobe today showing that fares last month were up 20 percent, so that, that inflation is there. And, and so far, travelers are willing to pay. And, and Delta's commentary last month at the JPM conference, you know, they, they said they are able to pass a lot of that fuel along to, to customers in the form of higher fares or mm-hmm. fuel surges. Um, that's for international travel on certain routes. But so far, we are seeing those fares uh, coming up and, and tickets are getting gobbled up alongside of it. All right. Uh, Leslie, thank you. Leslie Joseph. And a quick programming note here. Delta CEO Ed Bastian will join Squawk Box in an exclusive interview tomorrow, 7 a.m. Eastern time, following the earnings release. Do not miss that. And finally, we get to Bed Bath & Beyond. The retailer down 36% in the past year. Bank of America today calling the company one of its, quote, top underperform ideas for 2022, with options implying an 18% move and a 22% short interest. Things could get interesting tomorrow morning. Um, by the way, that's a move of plus or minus 18% in the options market. Courtney Reagan's got the story here on BBBY. Court. Yeah, well, so before we sort of look at the stock chart action, which admittedly has been a little messy for a number of reasons, let's talk about the fundamentals. So Bed Bath & Beyond is in the middle of this turnaround strategy led by CEO Mark Tritton. Remember, he came from Target. People were really jazzed up about the idea of him introducing private label brands to increase margins and sort of reinvigorate interest at this company. The private brands are there The sales are not so much yet. The company is forecasting uh, those comp sales to fall in the high single digits here. And this is in a subsector, home furnishings, that's actually doing pretty well. Of course, we all know we were at home and we refurnished and we redecorated. And that continues even despite some inflation in this category. So then if you look at the stock chart, you see this bump that happened last month. And that's because Ryan Cohen got involved. Of course, Ryan Cohen had a very big involvement or has a big involvement with GameStop, is the current chairman. 
So he's got a lot of retail interest and traders behind him. Bed Bath & Beyond was also one of these Reddit plays earlier on when all of that frenzy was really taking shape. So some of what we've seen in the stock price move is because of the involvement in Ryan Cohen. And Bed Bath & Beyond responded very quickly, in fact, adding three board directors after Cohen's involvement in a very short period of time. One thing that Cohen wants is Bed Bath & Beyond to look at spinning out Bye Bye Baby. However, he thinks it's much more valuable than some of the analysts on the street do. So I'm wondering if Bed Bath & Beyond doesn't have to give us a little bit more nitty-gritty details about that silo of the business and what it might be worth tomorrow when we hear more in-depth earnings. But this one's been kind of a messy one. The turnaround just hasn't taken hold yet. Todd, is there a fundamental story there for you? I mean, a compelling one, enough for you to invest in it. Um, so, so uh, no and no, Melissa. Uh, mm-hmm. Courtney just did a, a really good uh, thorough report on that. I wouldn't touch this with our investor money. This is a meme stock. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll make a comparison on that in a sec. I mean, I think they're looking for three cents a share. That's a 90% drop from the same quarter last year. They're battling online retailers, Amazon and others. Uh, they're trying to do their own digital strategy in this turnaround. They're facing supply chain bottlenecks, uh, potentially strained uh, 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 customer. Um, they are still pulling back from that Ryan Cone pop when he bought nine and change percent of the company. You know, there might be breakout support around 17 if you want to trade. This is YOLO, meme, fun money. This is not investment uh, as far as I'm concerned. And as Courtney said, they're trying to spin off the bye-bye baby. Uh, Cohen thinks that it's worth more. The market capitalization is worth more if they spin it off. uh, Loop Ventures came out and just said no. Strongly disagree with that. Uh, They they face the same issues. Higher staffing, input costs. Uh, It's going to pressure margin. Uh, But this stock isn't trading on fundamentals. It's a meme stock. And Again, I just want to qualify this. I would not put this in client portfolios, Melissa. I might trade it. I mean, you know me from when I was a, a younger, crazier trader, a uh, younger, crazy trader. Uh, but if you want a meme stock, look at GME. It looks actually a little bit better if you want to kind of trade it up through 190 in technical resistance. But unless you're trading this long term and investing in a current story, here. Don't touch okay, it. I like how you break into earnings exchange and sneak in GME because you know I'm going to bite on that one. You're saying GME is a better investment than BBBY right now. No, no, trade. Trade, better no, no, trade. No, 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 trade. Okay. A definite trade. Yeah, if you want to get your, you know, your technical crayons, anybody at home, just put up a, a chart of GME. You could just draw a, a trend line right across the top. It actually just kind of bumped up against it. I, I, I kind of wish this whole meme stock thing would go away so investors can stay focused on what matters in here. But if you must trade, do it with small money, do it with options, up through 190, it might get going again. I know. We, we see the fine print, Todd, on that one. Thank you. And thank you, Courtney Reagan, <laughs> Todd you, Gordon of New Age. Still ahead, the upcoming New York Auto Show is promising to be electric as the major automakers make big, big moves into EVs. We'll catch up with a few executives ahead of the big show next. And during April, we are celebrating Financial Literacy Month and featuring some of our CNBC contributors. Here's Josh Brown. Financial literacy to me means freedom. The freedom to choose how we want to live our lives, what we want to spend our money on, how we want to prioritize enjoying today versus being prepared for tomorrow. The more you understand about how banks work, how credit works, how long-term investing works, the difference between trading and investing, money in general, the more freedom you'll end up with. That's why it's so important that people take this seriously.
Welcome back. The New York International Auto Show kicks off this Friday, and the spotlight is on electric vehicles and inflation. CNBC's Phil Lebeau is in New York City with that story. Hi, Phil. Hey, Melissa, there are going to be a lot of EVs on display at the New York Auto Show. But for executives who are here, the big conversation point is inflation, particularly what we're seeing with new vehicle prices. Look, the average transaction price, according to Kelly Blue Book, in March was almost 46,000, up almost 13 percent year over year. Now, it's a couple of hundred dollars off of the all time high, but it raises the question, will it go even higher? Here's what a couple of executives had to tell us today. Unfortunately, I don't believe prices have yet peaked. Raw materials, steel, aluminum, uh, cobalt, lithium, everything's continuing to escalate. And manufacturing vehicles is a low margin environment. So unfortunately, the way I see it is manufacturers are going to have no choice but to pass these costs on. As long as we see more demand than supply, I think uh, we're going to continue to see uh, higher prices. Take a look at shares of Toyota and Hyundai. Both of the, the executives we talked with, Bob Carter and Jose Munoz, said, look, we don't think the uh, chip shortage is going to end anytime soon, expected to extend through the end of this year into 2023. And so as you look at all of the uh, automakers and some of the other, the big three, look at their shares and what they've done in the last year, keep in mind that inflation, Melissa, is really going to be the pain point that they're feeling over the remainder of this year. Yes, demand is there. Yes, they can pass this along to the consumer. But the question becomes, at what point does the consumer say, enough, demand destruction starts to kick in? Nobody's expecting that in the next couple of quarters, maybe by early 23 if things don't change. Melissa, back to you. Phil, thanks. Phil LeBeau at the New York Auto Show. Coming up, the 30-year mortgage rate is now at five and a quarter percent. The impact on demand and what history has to tell us about where the housing market could be heading next. to the exchange and uh, take a check in the markets right now because we are sitting at or close to session lows. The Dow is uh, almost flat of 23 points. S&P 500, this is one point off the session lows. 44.17 is our level of one-tenth of percent. And the Nasdaq giving up all but a third of a percent of an earlier 2% gain here. We're at 45 points right now. Meantime, the 30-year mortgage rate above 5% and stands to climb even higher as the Fed is poised to hike again next month. And that's already taking a toll on demand. So what is next for the housing market? Joining us now is Andy Walden, Vice President of Enterprise Research at Black Knight. Andy, great to have you with us. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Obviously, you know, the more of your monthly paycheck that goes into a mortgage payment, the less you have for the actual house, for the down payment. And so how does this all shake out in terms of affordability? I mean, if we look at what's happened so far this year, just driven by the record levels of home price growth that we've seen, plus the one and a half, 1.75 percent rise that we've seen in 30 year rates, you're looking at payments going up by about $400 per month for folks just buying the average home. That's a 30 percent increase over the first three months of this year. And if you extend that horizon back to the beginning of the pandemic, you're talking about over a $650 per month increase to buy the average uh, home, which is about a 60% increase in mortgage payments. So significant impacts we're seeing on, on potential home buyers at this point. I wonder if it's not necessarily the actual amount, but the shock of it, the fact that it has gone up so quickly. And so you could have been, uh, you know, in the market for a house and this is a process that takes months. And then all of a sudden you, you do your mortgage calculator. Once again, you find out that you can't afford as much house. And this has only happened over the past few months. How, how does that sort of psychologically impact that home buyer? I think it has a big impact. And you couple that with the, the record low levels of inventory out there. I mean, we have 800,000 fewer active homes out there 
on the market, which is about a 70% deficit in inventory. So if you look at it from a home buyer perspective, they're being hit by record levels of home price growth. We're seeing the strongest increase uh, interest rate increases that we've seen in 27 years. And now you're looking at record low levels of inventory as well. They're really being hit from all angles. And it's certainly not only a financial impact, but a psychological impact for homeowners as well. Do you think this slows down mortgage originations? I mean, does it Uh, get to the point where people stop looking for that house? I mean, absolutely. I mean, if you look at it just in terms of overall originations and refinances are a big component of that, 90% of mortgage holders have an interest rate below where the going rate in the market is today. So absolutely an impact from the refinance perspective. Cash outs have been holding that strong, but cash outs are starting to get hit now that interest rates are increasing. And and from I think you're going to see from a housing market perspective, both the demand side, right? The purchase lending activity, the home sale activity is going to be hit, but the supply side as well. Um, if you look out there in, in the number of listings, so I think you're getting hit from all angles. I mean, from from the uh, supply component there alone, you now have a third of mortgage properties that have a, a locked in interest rate 2% below what's being offered out there in the market. So you're going to see a disincentive for those folks to go out there and list their homes as well. So really, uh, again, being hit from all angles out there in the market right now. Uh, we're just about out of time, Andy, but I do want to ask you about whether or not we should be worried about the cohort of mortgage borrower who used an arm. Um, and that rate might float right now. Did, did most of those arms that, you know, five years, 10 years ago that, that were originated, did people refinance into a fix? I mean, should we be worried about these people all of a sudden being faced with huge mortgage payments? Yeah, I mean, the arms are a much, much, much smaller component of the mm-hmm. market than they were back in 2008, 2009. That was a big uh, lending cohort back in 2006, 7, 8 during the last run up. Not nearly as much now. You're seeing a little bit uh, of, of increased activity now that the spreads are wider and arms are a little bit more attractive, but not, not overly concerned about arm, arm resets like we were last time around. Andy, thanks. Andy Walden Absolutely. of Black Knight. Coming up, PC sales slowing so far in 2022 after the industry's best year in decades. What it means for the already beaten down chip makers and the Oracle of Omaha's big bet on the hybrid work boom. That story is next. And let's take another check on markets right now. The Dow is now negative. So we've given up our gains for the day. We had been up by 361 points. We're now down 16. The Nasdaq still eking out a slight gain there, but we are losing it as we enter on the final hour of trade. We are up by two tenths of percent or 25 points. The exchange will be right back. Welcome back. PC sales boomed during the pandemic, but given lingering supply snarls and the gradual return to office, they're forecasted to slow this year. Frank Holland has what that means for shares of the PC makers, while Christina Partsinevelis takes a look at what declining demand means for the chip stocks. Frank, kick it off. Hey there, Melissa. Shares of PC maker HP Inc. have jumped 10 percent since Warren Buffett took a huge stake in the company, seen as a bet on the continued strength of the PC market. Berkshire Hathaway becoming the largest shareholder in HPQ that has upgraded its guidance on the PC margin, where it gets 75 percent of revenue and announced a deal to acquire Poly, a headset maker for hybrid work, among other things. However, new data from Gartner shows a 7% decline year-over-year in the global market in Q1. The U.S. saw a 17% decline, the biggest of any region. HPQ actually losing market share. Dell and Apple both gaining market share. Lenovo remains the global market leader, but share still in the red red year-to-date, along with Dell. Back over to you. 
All right, Frank, thank you. And select chip makers could be hit by the PC sales slowdown, while others should be able to weather the storm. Christina Parsonevelis has got those names. Christina. Yeah, I want to start with three main reasons for the slowdown. Shortage in components, you talked about it. you got the supply chain issues and a slowdown in actual PC demand. So firms like Intel have exposure to the PC market because Intel is the world's largest producer of central processing units for personal computers. You also have AMD that has exposure, was recently downgraded to neutral from Baird. The stock is down almost 5%, and we're only Tuesday. There are some bright spots, though. Qualcomm, Marvell have little exposure to the sector. That would be PCs up today, but down sharply on the year. And in the case of NVIDIA, Bank of America analysts say investors are underappreciating other supportive trends like gaming. So despite a softening backdrop across most consumers, consumer-facing applications like PC and handsets, Broad-based demand trends from data centers and autos remain pretty robust, and that's what's expected to keep chip demand strong. All right. Christina, thank you. Christina Partsenevelis. And tonight on Fast, we are taking a look at the rip higher today in crude. Could we see oil surge again to 150 bucks a barrel? What that could mean for energy stocks and energy-sensitive stocks. Paul Sankey will join us. That does it for us. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Edinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.